Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to a, another episode of Software Gone Wild with just me, Nick Baraglio, as the host. Uh, today, got a very interesting project that a colleague of mine brought up to me called Ouroboros, and it's keeping in line with some of the new hotness that's uh, getting a lot of media attention today, uh, overlay networks. And overlay networks are something that are being embraced by data centers and enterprises and service providers. I've continued to use them. But this one, I think, is a little bit further down the road. It's got some really interesting attributes. And today we've got the uh, authors of this project. Uh, and I'm not going to try to say your last names because I will absolutely butcher them. But I have Dimitri and Sander. And you can say your last name, Dimitri. Dimitri Stassens. And Sander. Vredis. Okay. I'm glad I did not make that attempt. <laughs> so let's just jump right in. Overlays are, are a really popular topic right now, and you know they're being pushed out all the way to hosts and to you know edge devices all over, and they're allowing people to take a desktop in the middle of Illinois and make it look like it's sitting on the same land segment as you know a server down in Australia. You know that really opens up a lot of doors for a number of different things, you know security policies and you know, broadcast domain extensions and just all kinds of stuff. And a colleague of mine brought your project to my attention uh, very late one evening, and it really sort of piqued my interest because it feels like it's a re-envisioning of a handful of sort of very low-level topics in networking. And I really wanted to talk to you guys about it and sort of get that socialized a little bit. So can you guys give me a you know a brief synopsis of what it is that's a lot less crude than the way I've described it? Sure, it's going to take a while, but so Robros is really a project that stems from a lot of research coming from the clean slate research into computer networks. So background story is a little bit that Europe was funding projects into software defined networks and. They were taking one step further and they had like a, a clean slate kind of initiative that they were looking into for the future internet. And Roboros is actually a PhD project from Sander and myself that evolved from research into something called RENA. And RENA is a, it's called recursive internet architecture. It was coined by John Day in a book called Patterns in Network Architecture somewhere 2008. And to boil things down, he really looked at network architecture from a high-level perspective, and he said, like, OSI, TCP, five-layer model, there are things that are simply, I'm not going to say that they aren't working, but if you look at the network today, it's a lot more complex than what these two models are explaining. I mean, you don't have seven layers in your network right now. You have a lot more things. People are adding MPLS, you have tunnels, you have tunnels inside tunnels, applications running over SSL, virtual private networks. These things work, but they don't really fit with that seven-layer OSI model or the five-layer that you run in, in class. So John came up with a, a model called recursive networks. And recursive networks, they say, let's just take two things together, like your layer four and layer three. You see that as one layer, and that's your network. 
And if you want to have an internet, you just run that again on top of the lower network. So what you end up with is like every network is like a VPN and you run VPN on top of VPN. That's a little bit the idea behind this recursive networking. And it seems to work fine. So Ouroboros is actually coming from a number of generations of projects. In the end, that's what we came up with. That's like the most efficient way to do this kind of network architecture. Interesting. I listened to your YouTube video that you have on your site, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And a couple of things really kind of stuck out to me. You called out, just like you did here, you know, that we're taught this seven-layer model, right? And that seven-layer model is fine as sort of a basic building block tool, but in reality, you have things like MPLS that are considered layer 2.5, and you have things inside of things, and you have encryption at the application layer and at the transport layer. And so it gets very messy very quickly in today's internets. And so you wanted to address some of those elephant-in-the-room type problems with this project how you did that was pretty interesting. Um, and you mentioned uh, while we were chatting before, like it doesn't matter what medium you really run this on. And I think that's an understatement. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, you mentioned being able to run this over, say, USB. Yeah, in theory, yes. So what we wanted to do is simplify things from a lot of different angles at the same time. And that's something that, that's quite hard to do because we were looking at like, from the application developer point of view, from the network manager point of view. And right now, in the current way that the, the evolution of TCP IP is functioning, that you have like IETF is doing layer three and layer four, you have the IEEE doing layer one, layer two stuff. Then you have all these different kinds of organizations. You have the Austin group doing the POSIX API for networking. And we try to make things simpler from all these kind of different angles at the same time, which is I know it's very ambitious, but it's also a very unique angle to look at networking. So what we try to look at is if you have an application where you have a server talking to a client, what is the minimal kind of API that you want to work with there? And for instance, you have POSIX. And from a POSIX socket point of view, the simplest one that you can probably do is a Unix socket. And a Unix socket just works with a string. You just give it some kind of variable and then your operating system organizes some shared memory for you and you can communicate between two, kind, two applications on the same computer. If you look at POSIX then, if you want to go towards networking, then it becomes a bit more tricky because actually your application needs to know about what network it's going to use. So you have these struct sock other things which are like injected into this API, but they're quite clunky. This is basically the top angle that we try to take into the, into the project is if I'm writing an application that wants to talk to a server, why should it care how these packets are delivered to that server? Why should you, if the technology below that evolves, why can't the application just say, okay, I want my packets delivered with this kind of reliability. I don't want too many packet loss and I want it to deliver it within 50 milliseconds. Isn't that what you want to do? And there, there are a lot of research papers that are saying that this kind of approach is, is necessary for a quick evolution of every layer of technology. And that's maybe our most critical focal point is to abstract everything in a sort of containerized way so that if you want to change something, that any change will not have to migrate to the top and bottom of the stack. 
Let me give you an example, right? When you want to move from IPv4 to IPv6, your application needs to be IPv6 aware. You cannot just take your current software and say, now I'm on an IPv6 network where the only thing that essentially changed is the packet header for your data. Your data didn't change, only the packet header. So this kind of, let's say, we call it layer violations. So when your API is like leaking implementation information towards a different component, we try to avoid that. So equally to the top level, to the application, so your application is completely unaware what the network is doing, and also to the lower layer where you're more alluding to, so that the overlay for Ouroboros is that it doesn't really care on top of what you are running it. And that's where it's called a recursive network, is that the application API to the top and to the bottom is exactly the same. So when you have a new technology, all you have to do is wrap that technology within the API. And when you provide that API, you can just lay whatever on top that you would like. Interesting. So there's a lot to take apart there. First, I think, you know, the easy one is the, you know, the analogy you made between IPv4 and IPv6. And that's one of the, you've addressed something that I have extensive experience with, and that is that migrating from IPv4 to IPv6 has taken a very long time for that exact reason. Building an IPv6 network is largely easy. It's not hard to build out the infrastructure as long as your hardware supports it and the network operating systems on the gear will do it. It's easy to turn it on um, and it runs the ships in the night with IPv4. Where it gets hard is, like you had alluded to, the application layer pieces. And what's largely held a lot of that back is lack of support in legacy applications that just won't do IPv6. And so you get strange problems such as if you only have IPv6 and you're not running dual stack, the application will just think it has no connectivity whatsoever. I mean, even operating systems do this and they just say, I have no internet connectivity and they won't let you do anything. So you've taken that problem space. And again, that's sort of the simplest explanation of it that I can think of. And you've said, we don't want to have to think about that anymore. We don't care about that. We just want the application to be completely agnostic of what is underneath it. It can expect delivery of its data without having to think about how that delivery happened. Is that large true? That's the entire idea of separation of concerns, right? You separate what you want to do from how it's done. And right now, if you're writing network applications, it's not possible. I mean, I, I listened to your podcast about multipath TCP, but if my application wants to use multipath TCP, it needs to run all these sets of ops to establish the additional multipath TCP flow. So it would be a lot cleaner if you could just say, okay, now I have multipath TCP. And when your application say, I want a stream socket and your kernel supports multipath TCP, it just runs it over multipath TCP. I don't think it's really possible in, in the current architecture these days. Yeah, well, it's certainly, it's not a well-traveled path. I don't know if it's possible either. I don't think it is. Um, I think you have to build your application with support for it, but I could be wrong there. You were going to say something? Yeah, I think another problem with uh, the migration to IPv6, apart from the API, it's probably that they occupy the same place in the protocol stack. So basically the only solution is indeed to have like a dual stack. And so that's what we ended up with after like 20 years that yeah. most devices uh, have IPv4 and IPv6. And that's another advantage actually of uh, Ouroboros that 
you can run it also on top of IPv4 or underneath it. So it's also an easier migration because well, it's a lot more dynamic how you can uh, stack the layers. That was a pretty heavy statement that you just kind of stuck in there in the middle of everything. You can run it under IPv4 or on top of it. So that's a, sort of a testament to the flexibility of what it can actually do. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because it doesn't matter what part of that stack. You can run it recursively inside of whatever else, right? Like you had mentioned. That's interesting. That's a little above my pay grade, I think. But <laughs> it's uh, definitely a very cool and interesting take on how to do things. And I think that it will lend itself well to sort of scaling out in the future. Because as we see all of these large networks, even smaller networks are having to scale out in ways that they didn't they never have had to before. And scaling out, like I said earlier about the IPv6, you know, in the same vein, scaling, building a network is fairly easy regardless of what you're going to run over. You know, it's fairly easy to get one up and running, but scaling it is hard. Taking something, it requires forethought and that's not always possible for a number of different reasons. And I, and I like the fact that you don't necessarily have to think about that as much. You can never totally forget about it. You don't have to think about that part nearly as much. And was that one of your design goals? Well, in a way, the recursive networks, it's basically you have private networks by default. It's probably a good way to view it. So typically, I think your networks will be smaller as well because the current internet is a very big network because every device can communicate with any other device that has an IP address. So you will have to scale to a lot of devices, especially if you have like IoT devices now. So I think yeah, it will keep on scaling and it's a lot easier if you have private networks by default because then you can you can decide how big you want to let the network become and you can just replace it with a different layer in case uh, you found a more scalable solution. I think that's also a problem that you have right now it's with IPv4 and IPv6 is that there's a lot of ossification, right? So it's a lot harder to replace it. And I think that's probably also one of the reasons why people are looking at these uh, overlay networks, as you mentioned earlier, because it's a lot easier to deploy new stuff and overlay than it is in the space that IPv4 and IPv6 occupy. Yeah, it's very hard to rip and replace something that's been around as long as it has and also is now considered to be sort of a utility. You know, in the old days, when I got started, internet was like a novelty. Not a lot of people had it, right? And it was definitely not required. And now, if the internet goes out for, you know, three minutes, my kid wants to know why... <laughs> why Wi-Fi isn't working. So being able to push these overlays out on top of existing infrastructure is a pretty big deal. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular because tearing out the foundation of a building while the building is still up is pretty much impossible. I mean, I'm sure somebody can do it, but it won't be cheap and it won't be easy. Building an overlay on top of it lets you sort of hide the barrel of monkeys that's underneath there. And as long as it's built in, in a way that is resilient, if that barrel, particular barrel of monkeys falls over, it just moves to the other path that has a different barrel of monkeys in it. Yes, I just equated the internet with barrels of monkeys. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. It's not inaccurate. <laughs> it's, it's very accurate. I'm just going to jump a little bit on top of that, and that's if you really want to go further, you won't get away with just being an overlay. And that's where Ouroboros goes. It's also an underlay. Because if right now all applications are written towards the Sockets API, 
even if they're using some kind of library on top, the library will go towards sockets calls. So if you want to deploy something that, that is trying to give like major change, you would have to deploy it in a way that nobody has to immediately rewrite all software. Right. So it's very tricky to make sure that you don't have to replace all the routers in one day and you don't have to replace all the software in one day. But in the meantime, you're trying to change everything in between. That's why it's very important that, that we are providing this kind of tunnel interfaces. So we just have an application where it sets up a, a ton device and then you can route IP traffic on top of Ouroboros. And in the meantime, Ouroboros can run on top of IP. So you can really inject it into your network and give it you some flexibility in, in terms of, for instance, you create three ton devices, you run three web servers on top of this, and then you route all the traffic between those web servers and the clients over Ouroboros. And then one day you just take everything apart. You can change things underneath Ouroboros all the way you want while it's just running on top. So to clarify that a little bit, you can have your three web servers running. Your clients are also on the same Ouroboros network. You can take out whatever the transport medium is underneath. Take out, you can change it from Ethernet to ATM if you really want to, or, you know, if you're feeling masochistic. It, then it won't make any difference whatsoever. And you can do it while the network is actually running. So one of the use cases that we were thinking of, and maybe we should do a demo on that, is that you have, for instance, you want to upgrade a web server right now. You have a your physical server, and it's running Nginx on port 80, and you want to do an upgrade of that Nginx server, you will have to take it down for a moment. So your customers will have a, a short period that if they want to connect to that Nginx server, it will be down. The way that Ouroboros is built, we didn't think of this up front. We just noticed, hey, you can do this, and this is really cool, is that the way that we attach like new connection streams to an application you run your, your original Nginx server, you upgrade your software, you start a second Nginx server, and then you tell your first Nginx server to stop accepting the connections and all the new connections will go to the new server. And the old connections, you can leave them there. And once they're all gone, you just shut down your, your first Nginx server. And then you have like a seamless upgrade of your server. But nobody has ever noticed that your service is down. Okay, let's take that apart a little bit. You've essentially just described a in-service software upgrade of HTTP daemon. How does the client know, how does the traffic from the client to the old server and the client to the new server know when to move? With Ouroboros, it doesn't move. That's the entire thing. You have one daemon that is listening to IP, and this is accepting your connection. So we have an IP connection coming into that daemon, and then on top of that, you're running the software that that is translating some things need figures, right? But <laughs> it's okay. This is a socket layer difference, right? So in theory, these demons don't even have to be on the same system, right? They can be in different places. Yes, indeed. That will be a bit more tricky, it, it, but it can be done. Yeah, we would need to have a look at, at giving you an example of how. But in theory, yeah, it can be done. They don't need to be on the same system. That, that's actually one of the main things about Ouroboros is that it doesn't look at abstracting a protocol or a function. It really abstracts the entire network. So let's say your application doesn't really know where the server is. So you're not connecting to a address and a port. You are saying, I want to connect to Nick Baraglia's web server. And that will be resolved to an address a bit like 
DNS, but it's completely internal to the network. When you are establishing a new flow, it may be at a completely different location. These are things that you really need to explore a little bit with the software. Yeah, so there's two things there that I want to point out. You've essentially just described an analog to both load balancing and anycast, because in theory, you should be able to spin up multiple of these things. And given what I read on your site, you have an internal resolution mechanism, right? So each thing has its own, I don't want to call it DNS, but its own way of resolving what it is internal to the network. It is basically a, a directory service like Right. So you've essentially just described replacement of any cast or an analog to any cast and an analog to uh, complicated load balancing. Right. So in theory, you can have a, five of these web servers as long as the back end is all the same. As the content delivery, however, that is handled is the same content. You've got, you know, a you've got a redundant load balanced network. And, and without any extra mechanisms that we needed to add, it was just like, hey, this works. Yeah, that's pretty nice. <laughs> that's a little happy accident there. <laughs> it's covered this in a really funny way because we have a mechanism that's called automatic starting. So you can tell the, the Ouroboros, it, it also works a bit like what is called a super server. You can tell Ouroboros when somebody tries to contact this application and it's not running, start it. We did this like we told Ouroboros if you are getting a, a request for this ping server, and it's not there, just start one. We did that and we just fired it up. And being researchers, we gave it a huge amount of loads. And then without us expecting, it started the second one because the first one wasn't fast enough to respond. And it said, wait a minute, it's not running. And it just started the second one and started load balancing. But we didn't do anything. We weren't expecting this. That's amazing and scary at the same time. <laughs> wait, wait, what's happening? Oh, we have two servers running now. And it's just because internally it's, it's saying, okay, if you cannot respond to a request in 300 milliseconds, you, you assume the server is not there and it just spawned a new one. That's cool. So you mentioned the, you know, it's configured to wait 300 milliseconds or whatever. Is this centrally controlled? Is this distributed? How do you set those parameters up? There's, from what I read, it didn't look like there was any kind of hierarchy. It was distributed, right? Well, right now, indeed, it's, it's at compile time, but you could easily build like a network management system on top of it so that you can push the uh, parameters from a, yeah, from a man management location and say, okay, in, in this network. So because every layer is basically its own management domain. So because everything is, every layer is like a private network, so it's also a lot easier. So you can just say, okay, for all processes in this layer, I will push this kind of configuration. So that becomes a lot easier as well, uh, your network management. You don't have to agree with other people like, okay, let's configure it like this or like that. You can choose what, whatever algorithms you want to use in, in your layer as well. Well, and so that solves a lot of things as well. Like if everybody's using the same congestion control uh, algorithm, then it will, uh, it will work a lot better because you have no one cheating uh, the algorithm, for instance. Interesting. So not only is it easy to manage, uh, lends itself fairly well to what would today be considered in our networks to be automation. Right. It all boils to, you saw the, the presentation that we gave at FOSDEM, right? Then we have these primitives called bind and register, where register is saying, okay, to the network, this 
application is running at this location. That's basically feeding your, your internal DNS. So I'm saying Nick Baraglio's web server is at address 1742, for instance. Okay. The registration, that's a network kind of operation. And then you have the bind operation, which is a local operation on your server, which has uh, Nick Baraglio's web server. I have process IDs 1, 2, 4, and 7, and they can all respond to this kind of requests. So the network is going to say, I have a request for this kind of service. And then your local operating system is going to say, okay, I'm going to give this ticket for the service to this kind of process that's running on my machine. It's extremely flexible because it's done not inside the application. You're As a programmer, you don't have to say, I'm going to listen to this kind of name. No, you completely do it from outside as a kind of management. Interesting. So exactly, this bind and register. And this is the mind bending part and where you have to get a little bit used to it. We don't only do this for applications, we do this for the routers as well. So you stack routers on top of each other with exactly the same mechanism. And this gives you an extremely flexible way of organizing your network. And so that we should probably mention that, you know, in the description, it's also a, a quote unquote routing process, right? So each node is essentially deployable and can act as an Ouroboros router as well. Is that, did my read of that, is that correct? Or did I misread that? Well, it is correct indeed, but the software is, as it is right now was of course designed more general purpose. So you cannot, well, you can configure it as a router, but of course uh, we're only two guys developing it. So it would need a bit more uh, work to let it run completely uh, as a router to, well, to lower the latency even a bit more. Yeah, I mean, if you want to take the current software and, and you are trying to take a lot of load between a lot of different nodes, then we would need to optimize uh, some things that are, are not waiting for, let's say, replace all kind of weights with active polling. But maybe that's not exactly what you are referring to, right? But every node, so it's called ITCP, so Interprocess Communication Process. The name comes from actually originally from a project at uh, Lawrence Livermore with Watson. He did a, a network called Lynx. It's the Livermore network. And there he coined this term inter IPCP, Interprocess Communication Process, which is basically a, a software router. So whenever you are running this kind of daemon on your, your computer, it is routing packets. So in a way, Ouroboros is, is kind of like BitTorrent, but instead for file sharing, Every node is a small software router, and you can run it on top of each other. Okay, that was what I was thinking. But you know, thinking about this, you know, in comparison and contrast to like traditional networking, we would consider anything that's moving, that's transiting data from one place to another, to be some kind of a router. So, and it sounds like that's correct here. That, that sort of analog is is definitely there. Yeah, I think the main challenge actually in in designing and you have to feel like you're getting things right. It wasn't really inventing a lot of new things, but it's like taking the existing things and putting them together in a more efficient way so that things work better streamlined. So if you would compare it, like we have two protocols as well. So current internet, you have TCP, which is called the end-to-end -end protocol, and IP, which is doing your, your network packet forwarding. We have this similar kind of split, but some functions we did different. So for instance, congestion control, 
in the internet in TCP, that didn't work out very well because everybody's re-implementing every time. So that's the thing that we put into our network protocol. And then the other thing, like fragmentation that in IP doesn't work very well, and that's the thing we put into our end-to-end protocol. It are very small things, very simple things, but in the end, they make everything much simpler. And then assigning your address to not to your interfaces, but just to your applications. It are things that, that everybody already knew since 20 or 30 years, but nobody really took the time, or maybe they did, but that we just, uh, okay, let's do it from scratch and take everything that everybody already knows with us and see what comes out of it. Well, it sounds like you've really thought through a huge amount of like problem space here and actually have something that's deployable and usable. And I think um, folks probably want to know a little bit more about where they can get it and what they can do with it. So do you want to talk about the current state and let the listeners know, like, you know, hey, here's what's available and, and here's where we're at right now. That would be, I think people will want to know that. Yeah, that's indeed a very good question. So right now, this thing is, let's say, very usable prototype. I think it's beyond what would be called a proof of concept because it's stable. Personally, we ran networks of hundreds of nodes with it that are quite stable. So that's where you know merge from. We were trying to get 200 nodes from Exo from the Genie network and he noticed that somebody was trying to do that. So not a lot of people were trying to get 200 nodes at the same time for experiments. So that's where it's it's at in terms of scale, in terms of what you can do with it, it's what we were really looking for right now, and that would be very interesting is somebody that has a, a small use case or a like I'm running a service that is quite large scale, but you control everything. So let's say our dream kind of application would be, for instance, Sony PlayStation Network. Sony controls all the end devices because Ouroboros is, is really meant to work at, at huge scale. If you have 10 nodes, it's probably not, not going to be worth your while. But to get this kind of use case to drive the implementation further. Because right now, what is there is, I would say, a very usable research tool and maybe something that you can use to, let's say, you go towards product development and start investigating if this is something that is useful to you because the APIs are there. And if you see that, Using the Ouroboros APIs is, is getting you things done, getting stuff done a lot quicker for you. Then this could drive further development because right now, in term, there are things that are not really in place. I mean, parts of the implementation are using, let's say, we don't have backends that are going into MongoDB or, I mean, in terms of scaling, that kind of stuff that, that was out of our scope as a research project. But now taking it into to open source and trying to, to find more, yeah, we're trying to find use cases for it and, and people that will drive the development into the correct path forward. So to recap that, you've run this across uh, the Genie network, which for those that don't know, is a large US-based research network that's available for general use. So you reserve nodes and you can kind of do whatever you want with them. And it's geographically diverse. So there's nodes all over the country at different universities and research facilities. You've run it at, you know, a fairly good scale in hundred number of nodes across that. 
It's currently an open source project and you're looking for people to use it, basically. Yeah, just have a look at it. Tell us what they, they like and tell us what they don't like so that we can improve it. I like that. And it's available on GitHub? It's available on GitHub. It's available on our website, which you know is uroboros.rocks. Um, we, we have mirrors on GitHub, on GitLab, on Bitbucket. It's completely open source. It has a number of different licenses. So it's uh, LGPL for the most part. So if you use it and you want to write proprietary software on top of it, that's possible. Also, all the examples are MIT licensed or, or BSD licensed. So it, we try to keep fairly, let's say, correct licenses. Community-friendly, for sure. And source code is public to anyone. It's good news. I think uh, for listeners, you know, go check it out. Give these guys some feedback. And as you mentioned, the website is ouroboros.rocks. Uh, we'll put a link to that. And then if folks want to get a hold of you out on the internet, how do they do that? So I think the best way is either we have a mailing list and we have a Slack channel. And also you can contact us at Dimitri at Uroboros.rocks or Sander at Uroboros.rocks who are our email. But uh, I think most activity right now is on our Slack channel and there's a link uh, to just access that on our website. So at the bottom of the website, join the Slack and we'll see you there. Awesome. And uh, I'm Nick Baraglio doing my very best to impersonate Yvonne Pepignac and Software on Wild. Hopefully this has been informative and uh, everybody go out and uh, check this out. Sounds interesting. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.